Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Welcome back, everyone. This is your host, Mike. Dave and I thank you for joining us once again. We have a little something different tonight. The content of our special segment was generated by you, the listener, as we take on a few of your questions and suggestions that you've submitted over the last few weeks. So let's get on with episode 16 of Plastic Model Mojo. We're back again, Dave. How are you doing, Mike? Well, it's uh, early in the week. We're getting a little late on the recording here, but... uh, Appreciate the hospitality weekend before last there at your place. Not a problem. We had a had a great time. It was a good July Fourth celebration, and uh, the weather cooperated. So can't can't beat that. It was a it was a good time, and you you came bearing presents. And you know uh, uh, now that now that I have my my glasses and my opener, I'm absolutely set. I've already used it. Well, and I enjoy drinking your beer and you feeding my boys. <laughs> <laughs> that is a tough task. I think I actually filled them up for about five minutes. Yeah, we didn't have to stop on the way home, so that's a pretty good job. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I'll bet you they were hungry when they got home. <laughs> they sure were. They sure were. <laughs> so uh, what are you drinking tonight? Uh, I'm enjoying a little uh, zombie dust from Three Floyds out of <laughs> Munster, Indiana. Good choice. Uh, you introduced me to that one day ago, and I got to say, that's pretty darn good. Now it's from Three Floyds. I have the Gumball Head's my favorite, and this is a second. After that, they fall off quick because they get they get pretty intense. After that, a lot yeah. of brews do, but uh, that's a lot hoppier than a lot crisper, a lot sharper than Gumball Head. Yeah. So it means I got to be in a little bit of a mood for it, but we'll see how it goes tonight. Yeah. The the only one that I've tried of. Uh, Three Floyds that I really did not like was their Robert the Bruce, their Scotch Ale. And that just, uh, I, I did not like the taste of that. But the others, uh, I've enjoyed every one I've tried. And uh, when you mentioned the uh, zombie dust, I got some and uh, had some yesterday and it was quite good. No complaints. Well, what are you enjoying? I hear the ice rattling in your glass. That's right. Well, actually, I think I have a first for... Plastic Model Mojo. I'm drinking a mixed drink. I'm. I've got. Have you ever heard of a gin Ricky or a lime Ricky? Yes. Okay. Well, um, I like. You know, it's it's winter down for the guys down under, and I sympathize for them. But uh, up here, it's summertime, and we are in the the heat of the Ohio Valley in July and August. It gets pretty warm, 90, 95 degrees. Uh, during the daytime. So I like ice cold beer, especially when I'm doing yard work, but even bourbon on the rocks is a little heavy for a summertime drink. I'm usually looking for something a little lighter. My favorite summertime drink is called either a gin ricky or a lime ricky. You can find several variations of the recipe on, on the internet, but at its base, it's really just limeade or lime juice and gin uh, with ice, of course. I 
bought some aviation gin, which appropriately named gin. It's actually the gin company owned by uh, actor Ryan Reynolds and his wife. Uh, you may see the occasional ad for it. I'd never had it before, uh, and so I wanted to try it, and I went ahead and got some to to make my lime rickies, and uh, it's pretty good. Uh, about 42% uh, alcohol, so it's about 84 proof, which is a little strong for a gin, but it doesn't have a strong alcoholic burn to it. This is a nice way to drink it. Uh, I've got to say, I, I'm, I'm enjoying this, uh, particularly sitting uh, when I'm sitting on the back porch by the pool out in the heat in the evenings. It's a very refreshing drink, so I can recommend anybody out there try a Lime Ricky. May have to do that. We got some gin around here. Yeah, all right. But back to the topics at hand. We got a little listener mail. All right. We're hearing back from Doug Oliver again, uh, our buddy up in the Indy Carmel area of Indiana. The, the guy we saw at the uh, Roscoe Turner show right. had that prototype he was working on. Uh, he's far enough along now that I'm just going to basically spill the beans on basically basically what it is. He's he's made a topper for the Tamiya workstand. You know the the round top thing right. that the Tamiya makes. Yeah. Uh, his, uh, his beef with that thing was that there weren't enough sockets in the top of it for enough like alligator clips and part holders. Right. So he's divides this basically It's a platen with a bunch of, uh, precision and drilled holes in it. That's, and it's got a, a big circle cut out on the back. It just drops down over the Tamiya stand. And then you've got like, I don't know how many, but a lot, the things like, six or seven inches square, I think. And then it's just covered in, in holes. Mm -hmm. He sent some pictures of that and we can get those up. And I think he's selling them on Etsy too, but, um, he's actually asking, I'd like to find a heavy user of that stand because he's wanting somebody to take it for a test drive. Hmm. I actually use my, to me, a stand quite often, uh, mostly as a painting service, uh, surface. And I'll use, uh, Tamiya double-sided tape. And the, the thing I like about the Tamiya stand for 72nd scale, it's just about the right size and the ability to quickly spin the model as you're painting, uh, as you're airbrushing, is really advantageous. So uh, yeah, I, I use my Tamiya stand a lot. I'd be interested to see how how that works on top of it. Uh, Ethan Eidmill from IPMS San Diego is writing us again. Uh I wanted to thank you for your last episode on YouTube channels. I've ended up sus subscribing to all of them. Well, he's going to have a full inbox every week. <laughs> That's right. That's good. Um, it is. He's, he's got a couple suggestions, which is kind of the theme of a few of these, a couple of these. Uh, let's see here. He recommends also we look at uh, model chili scale models and model chili is one word. Yep. I just, I discovered that recently. Uh, f mostly sci-fi, uh, but solid techniques. And he says it's really a really good one for beginners. And he also recommends Harry Houdini models. Hmm. I hadn't heard that one. Me either. Uh, Ethan says he learned to do a, a wooden deck aftermarket deck on hmm. scale ship through that I, website. I have to take a look at that. Uh, Mr. Robert Perlman from, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. So he's way out West, I guess. My geography's right. Yep. That's up North of, uh, North yeah. Yeah. He's just moved from a, a larger residence to an apartment and he's wanting some tips and suggestions on modeling in small spaces. And 
we're actually going to file that in a way a little bit later and we'll cover that a little bit later but uh it's an interesting topic that we will cover we have tim gonzalez from fresno california so T- tim is back after 35 years and uh, he too's got a got a uh well, he credits YouTube for for facilitating his learning curve coming back into the hobby, and he recommends Andy's Hobby Headquarters, particularly if you're getting back into it or new. Uh, Andy's videos are about a half hour long, and they they walk through pretty much everything from out of box review to build, paint, weather, all that stuff. So he's got a lot of videos too. Uh, he's got a modeling pet peeve. All right, it's a, it's kind of a crossover. He doesn't like model build videos where the content provider doesn't talk or say anything. I agree with him. Uh, now, some <laughs> of those some of those guys are non-English speakers, and so what they do is they put English captions on and either have no voice or they'll, they'll speak in whatever their native language is. But I agree with him. I, I, I don't enjoy the ones as much that don't have English narration to them as opposed to just subtitles. Well, you know, and a lot of them just have a bunch of music. Yes. And sometimes that can be irritating. <laughs> it's like you're on an elevator. Yes. <laughs> for, th- <laughs> for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, Tim's also a mechanical engineer from Fresno state university. All right. So we're brothers in arms. Or micrometers, maybe. <laughs> and he has extended family in Lexington. Oh. So how about that? So he's looking forward to visiting his stepbrother and getting some Kentucky bourbon barrel ale. Yeah. So, Tim, if you're ever in town, let me know. We'll figure something out. Yeah. We'll go We'll go find some of that bourbon barrel ale. <laughs> we'll find you all passed out on the bourbon trail somewhere. That's right. <laughs> uh, David Waples from uh, Colorado is back and again with the uh, the youtube channels he is a longtime follower of flory models out of the uk now yes phil flory is a does some big time video production for the hobby out out of the uk uh i know he's got the youtube stuff but i didn't know this he's actually got a, a paid paid content page oh, does he really no i did not know that either yes he says it's a fee-based oh okay. fee-based content so not the YouTube stuff's not, but I, I'm, now I'm curious what else he's got. Well, an, a number of those uh, folks who have on YouTube, who have YouTube channels, have a Patreon page and they will produce uh, subscriber-only content. I know that uh, uh, Uncle Night Shift, he doesn't necessarily produce uh, uh, subscriber-only content, but he gives them access to daily updates as opposed to once a week videos and photographs and more interaction. So uh, I know a number of those YouTube guys who are doing Patreon and who are supplying on a, a plus basis for those people who, who support them, that kind of content. Now, Phil Flory also has a line of products, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, absolutely. I don't know that I've ever seen them over here in the united states but uh i don't know if i have either maybe worth checking out yeah absolutely all right well, that kind of wraps up the listener mail all right well if y'all don't mind a moment uh here's my usual plug for asking you to take a moment when you're done listening to this episode to 
stop and rate us on whatever podcast listening app you're using, be it iTunes, Stitcher, uh, Google Play, whatever it is. It helps us. It, it If you'll rate us, you'll give us five stars. It'll drive uh, the visibility of our podcast up and so that more people can find us. And speaking of that, I also want to thank everybody out there for listening. Um, our, our listenership's been going up and we appreciate it. We know that at least some of it is due to our listeners' word of mouth. So if you have modeling friends who don't listen to podcasts or don't listen to us, if you would pass it on and let them know, uh, maybe, maybe help them get a, a, a podcast app downloaded to their phone so they can start to listen and uh We'd appreciate everybody sharing it as much as possible because the more of us who are involved in this, the more enjoyable it becomes. And the other part of that increase is uh, all the selfless and frequent support we've been getting from the other two podcasts. If you're listening to us, you got to also check out Scale Model Podcast out of Canada. That's Stuart and Anthony up in London, Ontario, and they're up to episode 50. Their latest episode was uh, a wrap up interview with the organizers of WantaFest. Now, WantaFest was a online virtual contest and vendor room that was thrown together by these guys when WonderFest, the big sci-fi and pop culture scale model event in Louisville, was postponed till October. And then we'll see what happens in October. But uh, this thing was a a huge success, but I think it was such a success that these guys aren't too keen on doing it again. <laughs> hey, contests are a lot of work, man. And I've got to think a virtual contest is even more work. I think they ran into a lot of pinup folks who just wanted to do something right. Yeah. But it, good for them. I mean, they're sending all the proceeds go to Wonderfest because, um, you know, they used the, they used to the show early proceeds for seed money for setting up the next show. And when they got delayed, they're kind of in a pinch, I guess yeah. of sorts. So, uh, yeah, it, I won't, I won't spoil the amount, but it was, it was substantial, uh, more than they ever imagined they would take in on, on such an endeavor. But, uh, in addition to scale model podcast, please check out on the bench from Australia with Davey and Julian. They're up to episode eight. And they're always giving us good plugs. And did you, did sorry, you say me, episode I, eight? <laughs> I meant to say episode. They are up to episode eighty-eight. There you go. And they, their topic in their latest episode is uh, um, your bench setup and what's kind of desirable and where to go from there. Well, I'm going to get into a new segment this month or this episode, and we're going to call it Countdown to Vegas. All right. I initiated a conversation with uh, Mr. Bob Provado out in Las Vegas, Nevada. He's the president of IPMS Las Vegas, and he's also the chairman for the 2021 IPMS National Convention. And I wanted to offer up uh, Plastic Model Mojo as kind of a regular platform for promoting this show because I know everyone wants it to be a huge success given the demise of the 2020 show. So, so with that, in my conversation so far, the, the 2020 cancellation that just kind of shifted the spotlight over onto the 2021 team. And uh, he says they've been overwhelmed with calls and emails. 
And I think it's already out there, but the website he he told me was to officially launch on July 15th, which is we're recording on the 14th. So that would be tomorrow. That'd be Wednesday, July 15th. Um, That, that web address, the URL for that is www.natslv2021.com and natslv2021 is all, all one string. And if you have any other questions for Bob, he can be reached at uh, director.nats2021 at AOL.com. And we'll, uh, we'll include those in our show notes, but there they'll be, his contact will be on the, the uh, 2021 website that we just gave as well. Um, the 2021 IPMS nationals are going to be held August 18th through the 21st, 2021, obviously, uh, at the Rio casino and convention center in the fabulous city of Las Vegas, Nevada. And I think if I did my calculation correct, as of July 14th, 2020, we are a mere 400 days away from the IPMS national convention. Yeah. I, I cannot wait. Uh, the website is supposed to go live tomorrow, the 15th. Uh, rooms will open up at that date. Uh, and they have, of course, if you've ever seen the Rio Hotel, it is huge. They've got plenty of rooms. Um, I, I can tell you that uh, it appears like they're trying to arrange some tours, one of which is the petting zoo out at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas, which I've had the privilege to actually get access to. And if they can, if they can arrange that, and that's an if, because, you know, military bases are always difficult. If they can arrange that, that is a don't miss tour. It, uh, uh, there's, there's stuff that you'll see there that you don't see generally anywhere else. So I can tell you that, uh, I'll be booking my room as soon as the rooms open tomorrow. And, uh, uh, I can't wait to get there. So stay tuned for regular updates and hopefully a few interviews along the way. He's expressed some interest after I inquired about that as well. So, and hopefully I get to go too. That's all I got to say right now. <laughs> We're rooting for you, Mike. Thank you. We got 400 days to figure this all out. Right. All right. <laughs> so in the meantime, if you've been building anything, what's your bench top look like? Oh, I'm still killing it. Trying to catch you. <laughs> well, you keep cutting the power to my house. You, you might well catch me. Well, so, after after diving down into your your model dungeon, there, um, you, you got to build that. You got to build that bibber into a diorama or something, or it doesn't count. <laughs> uh, well, maybe we'll let the members decide. Uh, it looks like a cereal box prize. It, Probably it more does. sprue than part. Yeah, well, it's about 50-50. <laughs> so what's on your uh, bench? Uh, the E16A1 and Catapult are still moving forward. And it's about to pick up more pace because I just got in the mail today from uh, B&A Model World down in Australia. Uh, my seatbelts. How long did it take? Uh, that's a good question. I think about four weeks, five weeks. Yeah. Yep, that's what mine ran. And uh, normally, uh, shipping from BNA is not nearly that long, but the COVID has has stretched out shipping times for from any uh, international source. Well, I, I I tell you, I like BNA because it's kind of a window into the Asian market 
because of their proximity to it and their the shipping out of Australia is really not too terrible. Yeah, no, it is. It's really good. So last episode, I was going on about how I had a solution for the 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 assembly of the catapult and the painting and the cabling and all that, and and kind of the last or the next hurdle was these dive breaks I wanted to do on this thing. So anybody's been following on on the Facebook page knows I've been dabbling with some homebrew brass etching, and I think I've pulled it off. It looks like you have. What I'm doing it's it's a it's a method I discovered on a website called Starship Modeler. It's a uh, sci-fi website that's got a, uh, I can't remember what the section is called off the top of my head, but there's a whole section on the website that's all techniques and skills and all that kind of stuff. How-to how to articles. And it had a method for doing, your, doing etched metal at home that utilizes a product called Press and Peel Blue. Now this this product is a printable transfer media, and it was it's primarily for homebrew printed circuit boards. And what what this stuff lets you do it's, it it well first it eliminates two steps in the, in the traditional photo etching process. One, it gets rid of the the UV exposing of a photoresist layer, and then it gets rid of the chemical development of that resist layer. So you're you're down from two nasty chemicals to one you got to have an etchant and a developer and the developer in regular pe applications is either sodium or potassium hydroxide typically you know drain cleaner right and the etchant's either muriatic acid which is a, a hydrochloric acid or or ferric chloride now what you do with this process is you still have to generate your artwork cad whatever it needs to be a, a printable format and then this press and peel blue is is printable via laser printer so any kind of toner image like a photocopier or a laser printer um, you actually print the artwork onto this press and peel blue and then you run that through a laminator with uh with the brass sheet you're going to etch on after you've done a couple other steps of the brass like clean up the etch side and if you're only doing a one side etch, you need to cover up the other side with packing tape or just something simple like that. And then once it's transferred to the brass, you peel off the top mylar and it's ready to go into the etchant. Now I'm using ferric chloride, which, you know, it's an acid, but it's not a terrible acid. The big problem with ferric chloride is it stains everything. It's a really dark amber kind of color and it'll just stain everything. Um, I, I, my first etches were at room temperature in a, in a, it's just in a, in a plastic container. I want to try, I've got a bubble tank that kind of will agitate mm -hmm. the, the muric acid or, or the ferric chloride or the etch, whatever etchant you're using and help, help the etch along. It's also got a heater in it, like an, like an aquarium or a fish tank heater that will heat the stuff up above room temperature, which also helps. And I'm not sure the limitations yet. I want to try a better printer. And I want to try this bubble tank and maybe a different etchant. But I, I tell you, after my second shot at it, they really came out good. I mean, I got a lot of usable parts and really expand some horizons. I, I want to try some more of this one-sided kind of etching and then uh, maybe have a go at a, a double-sided etch, which lets you put like half-etch fold lines and things and stuff like right. that. 
Well, uh, what does your what does your wife, the chemical engineer, think of you playing around with those chemicals? <laughs> uh, she asked what I was doing with ferric chloride. <laughs> I'll bet she did. After I asked her what the best way to neutralize it was, so we got a we got a plan now. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you have a resource. I'll, I'll, that's right. All all my other craps on hold because. Uh, up until today, it's like Christmas in July. Uh, I've not moved forward on the on the Morris tractor because I was waiting on the circle cutter, which showed up today. All right, it's a Shadow Hobbies thinner line circle cutter. I yep. just got it in the mail today. I've test driven it a little bit. Uh, they've had some continuity continuity of supply problems due to COVID nineteen because uh, those those circle cutters are assembled in the United States, but a lot some of the I don't know a lot, but some of the components do come from China. And, uh, of course, they had a little bit of problem with that for the last few months. Sure. Uh, I'm way too into this Paul project right now to work on the Zist 2, so I haven't <laughs> touched it either. For shame. For shame. <laughs> what about you? What are you working well, on? Well, uh, the, the model production line is moving along. Um the bibber is painted, and now I'm doing airbrushing highlights and shadows. Um, I'm going. I'm. I'm kind of playing around with the bibber, as you noted. It is not the world's most complex kit. Um, so one of the things I'm doing with it is I am doing high contrast painting to kind of play around with that and see what effects that I can get from doing a more than normal high contrast uh, painting technique. Uh, just experimenting, really, to see to see what I can do. Um, the M30 is moving along slowly. Uh, it has a lot of tiny little parts. Uh, uh, and I'm going to uh, I'm going to ramp up on it uh, here shortly. But right now it's just, you know, a couple of parts here, a couple of parts there getting added to it. Um, I'll, I would have made a lot more progress if twice in the last week uh, I had not lost power at the house due to stor summer storms, uh, which kind of deprived me of two really good building days. Uh, and uh, finally, the Russian AS-1 missile that uh, has been sitting kind of dormant for a while is now back in the production line and it will follow the bibber into the paint booth and the painting arena since the M30 will be in the construction side for a while. Well, the last thing that uh, is on my bench, Mike, actually leads into our next se segment, What Broke Your Wallet? Um, because the last thing on my bench is a one-tenth scale young miniatures bust of a 101st Airborne soldier uh, from Bestone. It's actually modeled after the Band of Brothers actor from that series. The reason I'm, I bought a bust is that uh, Brett Avance, the uh, principal of Sabo Miniatures, was supposed to come down to the Military Modelers Club of Louisville Spring Contest and do a painting seminar at the contest. Well, of course, the like all the spring model contests, our, our contest got, got canceled. 
And Dr. Terry Hill, the vice president of our club, contacted Brett and said, hey, do you want to come down and teach an all-day class of bust painting? And he was open to it. So he's coming down actually this Saturday, the uh, 18th. And we all, about 10 or 12 of us, paid a fee of about $100, which got us this Young Miniatures bust, which retails for like about $65, plus the paints that we need to paint the bus. So Brett sent them all to us in advance so that we could clean them up, get them primed and get them assembled so that on the 18th, we can all, all of us who are taking the class can all show up and basically spend all day with him teaching us how to paint these particular busts. And I think I've mentioned on the, previous episode that some of the best modelers that I've ever seen have been figure modelers who move into armor or aircraft or cars or whatever. I think that figure modeling and figure painting gives you a better eye for color and paint and shade and tone. And so I'm kind of I've always been interested in doing, say, historical figures and historical busts. And so this was an opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So it broke my wallet, but I think it's going to be well worth it. So how about you? Well, one more thing. Brett wrote a book. Brett wrote a book uh, under the uh, Letterman Productions banner from VLS Corporations, uh, Getting Started Painting Diorama Figures in Acrylics. And I'm looking at it right here. Mm -hmm. Um He's come a long way since he, this book was copyright 20 or 2001. So pretty much 20 years when he started, started that book before it actually got published. I, I'm sure uh, you have to let me, let me know how it goes. I, I wish will. I could participate in it, but it's just not going to work out for me on the day that it is. So I had to sure. pass, but uh, he's a really super guy. I talked to him up at the Roscoe Turner show for a little while. And yeah. uh, I, I bet you guys are going to learn a lot. Uh, I think so. Er, he's the guy who turned me on to those Zem brushes. And uh, uh, I mean, he's clearly a knowledgeable guy. He's very talented. If you've seen uh, some of his recent work, he's just a super talented modeler and uh, figure painter. So uh, even though I've, I've got little or no experience in this, I did I've done one bust in my lifetime, and that was 12 or 13 years ago when uh, club member Noel Walker taught a class uh, for club members on, we all painted the same uh, Confederate artilleryman bust, uh, and I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to this. I really am. So uh, what's damaged your bank account? Have you been bad? I've been bad. <laughs> all right. Well, the fir first thing was settling up with you, 4th of July weekend. I've got this <laughs> Ryefields Models 5C Firefly kit. Well, A, I'm proud of myself that I didn't open it. And B, have you opened it? And how's it look? Uh, I have opened it. And my first impressions are very favorable. I'm glad I sold my old Dragon Firefly. Glad I did not buy the Tasco one at the last Cincinnati show, which I almost did. Um, there's a lot of plastic in this box. 
Uh, like I said, it's favorable first impressions. It's really sharp and crisp. There's a the detail is like the turret and hull cast texture is really good. You know, it's there's no PE in here. I don't think there is. I'll dig. You can hear me digging. No, nope, there's a fret, but but uh, the the fenders, the British style sand shield fenders, are are injection molded, for instance, and you know they've had to mold them thick and put the tapered edges on them. Uh, other than that, that's not so bad, really. No. Uh, I, I've front, got a I got a big guy. I got big plans for this one. Well, the the my my favorite Sherman is the Firefly. So I gotta say that was off when I picked that up for you. It was awfully attractive. So what are your big plans for it? I'm supposed to be flying back from 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 Germany tomorrow, but I'm not. I'm sitting in my my hobby room in my house. Um, in preparation for that trip that never happened my youngest son and I were supposed to spend about four days and based out of Bayou France and tour all the Normandy beaches, all the rear area drop zones, St. Marigli's sort of thing. And, uh, I was going to, there's not much to see here see there. Well, there's in Normandy, but in what I'm about to say next, there was not much to see at Villers Bocage, uh, that village near Caen. Right. Uh, there's just, it's not, a lot to see there except the, the the roads that were there during uh michael vitman's big run on that british unit coming up the road there at village bocage is still there and the house at point or hill 213 is still there uh in anticipation of that trip i bought uh after the battle book uh through the lens on villers bocage a very good photo essay from the german photography that was taken shortly after that incident uh there's a firefly on hill 213 uh nicknamed ala kafik and a lot of people attribute whitman to killing that tank and he didn't because whitman was never on hill 213 in that assault uh he cut into the british column uh about halfway down between hill 213 and the village proper and turned away from the hill went down the british column away from the hill did a u-turn and came back up and a lot of people don't know, but his tank was actually knocked out by, or not, it was immobilized by a British six pounder anti tank gun. So he didn't come out of it completely unscathed. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this, this tank is right at the crest of the hill at a, at a crossroads. And the Germans in the photographs are trying to, trying to get it started again because it's, to me, it looks like it has an eight centimeter shell penetration on the loader side of the gun mantlet. And it was knocked out by a couple other Tiger tanks that were active in in Vittman's unit. Um, I can't remember. Vittman at the time was not assigned to uh, the 1st SS Panzer Division anymore. He was with a 502nd or 503rd SS Heavy Panzer Company. And they'd been re- they, they were assigned to an Army unit. Right. Actually. Uh, but anyway... That's the tank I want to do. And there's a lot of pictures of it from a lot of angles. So that's, that's kind of advantageous for a modeler, obviously. Are you going to do, are you going to do it knocked out? Yes. Okay. Watch uncle knife chips video on doing battle damage to tank. He's to tanks. He's got a really good set of videos on that. And if what I'm seeing is a shell penetration, it it was probably a solid shot. It wasn't a high explosive anti-tank round because the tank's not burned. Right. It's got a hole in it. Um, so that's what I plan on do- doing with the, with this kit. 
Speaking of that, if you've got access to Amazon Prime, there is, for free for Prime members, an episode of a British TV show, and I cannot remember what which show it was, but uh, it's an episode. No, I'm sorry. This is on YouTube. I take that back. It's on YouTube. There's an episode of this British TV show, and it's uh, Who Killed Michael Vittman? And it covers Villers Bocage or his early uh, success on the Eastern Front, and then covers Villers Bocage, of course, and then actually does an analysis to figure out which which unit was responsible for actually knocking out his tank on the day he was killed. And it's really quite interesting. It's about 25, 30 minutes long, and it's on YouTube, and uh, I highly recommend it. Are we going back and forth here? Is the bus the only thing you bought in the last two episodes? Uh, you know what? Uh, really, it is. Uh, I've... I really have not. I've been, uh, unlike you, I've been good. Um, <laughs> well, uh, I can go on. Well, go on. Tell me what else. I mean, you know, I'm going to live vicariously through you. Okay. Well, I bought one of those Kogero publishing 3D super drawing books of the battleship carrier uh, Isa. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> I got a feeling this is going to be a really bad idea. <laughs> I just want to know how much of the ship you're going to end up scratch building. I don't know, but curse Jeff Groves. <laughs> he gotcha. It's all your fault, Jeff. <laughs> hey, the man built a scratch built 72nd scale Japanese seaplane tender. You can't, you can't blame him for trying to suck you into building at least part no. of the Japanese battleship. I'm going to build part of it. Not nearly as much as he built it as seaplane tender, though. Yeah. Yeah, that might be a little large. Uh, the other thing I bought wasn't too terrible. Uh, I got a JLC razor saw from UMM. Uh, really pleased with that in a couple of regards, but I'm going to defer that until our special segment here coming up. Yep. I'm yep. trying to think what else I bought. I mean, a lot of stuff came that I bought prior. I mean, I got the circle cutter in the mail and I got the seat belts in the mail. Um, this stupid book has been in Lexington for three days and hasn't been delivered to my house yet. I'm not sure what's up with that. It's on various Amazon trucks or UPS trucks. Uh, it should be in a mail truck. Oh, okay. If you have nothing else that you've bought right. or nothing you want to admit to. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, we'll get on to our special segment tonight. And our special segment is kind of a listener topic roundup over, well, I guess going back from our, from episode one, we've had a few emails and Facebook messages, et cetera, that have, have asked some questions that, uh, beg to have a little more meat to the answer than an email or, or just a, a blurb on, in our listener mail section. So what the first one is. Uh, who who asked us this? See, I'm not as prepared as I thought I was. <laughs> I don't remember who asked this one. Uh, but basically, it's it's paint preferences and and kind of a color theory type question. The uh, submitter was curious about what we thought about exact match versus more of the artistic or scale effect kind of 
avenue for some of these new paints that we're seeing. Um, an exact match, I mean, things like federal standard numbers or RLM or RAL numbers, Ministry of Defense, 4BO, whatever. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing versus the colors we're getting from, you know, the likes of uh, AK Interactive or Life Color or, you know, some of those some of those kind of companies. Yeah. Vallejo. Well, I, I actually have, uh, so I have some thoughts and theories on this. There is no question that if you take a color, an exact match color of, let's just say gunship gray, an overall gunship gray C-130, and you paint it you know, the the real prototype is overall gunship gray, and you shoot a photograph of it in daylight from 300 feet away. Then you build a 70-second scale model of it. You paint it gunship gray, and then you take a photograph of it in the same lighting conditions from a scale 300 feet away. There is no question that the scale model will appear darker than the prototype simply because of there's less surface area to bounce light. Even though you're shooting from the same scale distance, there's a difference between the prototype and the scale model. So they do appear darker. But frankly, I think that's gotten less important over time. Back when I first got into, back into modeling, back in the early and or mid-80s, um, models weren't weathered. Uh, you didn't see paint variation and, and uh, you know, stress effects and effects of weathering and, and the variation even in a one-color paint scheme. And so models were painted very cleanly. They weren't weathered. And so whether or not you adapted the paint to scale or painted the the model with an exact color match made a difference in regard to what your model looked like. And there were people who were in the exact match category. I mean, sometimes they're referred to as color Nazis who, you know, they wanted to be able to hold a color chip up to your model and, and made sure that RLMO2 was RLMO2, whereas other people using the scale color theory recommended lightening whatever you were painting to get that scale effect. Uh, usually they recommend white, but white always isn't, the, isn't always the right color for, for getting scale effect, depending on what color you're lightening. But I think a lot of that really has has disappeared in importance in that now, because of the, the, the techniques that we're using, some of it is exemplified, sometimes hyper-exemplified in the what's known as the Spanish school, where whatever base color you lay down is just that. It is a base color upon which you layer lighter colors. You may also 
pre-shade panel line so that what you ultimately get is not a monochromatic color. It has a lot of variation in the finish, even if that finish were a single quote-unquote color. Well, with that technique, scale color becomes a lot less important because of the fact that you are breaking the finish up. You're doing, you know, your lightning panels, your darkening panels, your darkening panel lines. You're exaggerating the effects in order to try and, and give something a, a more 3D appearance than it has just from the basic model itself. I think the exact color you start with is is a lot less important. And my impression is that the same way that's true in armor modeling too. I'd like to hear what you think about that. You know, like the discussions over 4BO or US Olive Drab or, or you know, whatever. It seems like that original base color, because it's going to get weathered and changed and all, doesn't seem to be as important as it once was. Well, I, I agree with that entirely. I, I think, I think it, to, to, in today's, today's modeling world, with all this emphasis on finish and all these weathering products and all these techniques that I think you're absolutely right. I don't think that an exact match is really even relevant anymore like the, a lot of these techniques, you know, you, you start with a shade that's way lighter than what was actually ever put on it. And you probably cross the actual color at some point in the weathering process right? before you end up where you, where you finish. And it just, it just, I don't think it matters anymore. I think it's, it's really a, it's almost a moot, moot point. Yeah. I like, I like the effects of all the distress paint and all that. I, you know, I've seen some things like you say on night shift that I really want to try. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned 4BO and US Olive Drab. Now US Olive Drab, I think rolling out of the factory was probably as consistent as any, any nation's paint probably was, if not more mm -hmm. so. Um, but, but in the field, once it's weathered and faded, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't build a lot of U.S. armor, so I, I don't have a, a lot of knowledge about olive drab. I guess I need to, to brush up on that if I'm going to build this Firefly. But 4BO is, you've heard me joke and call it 4BS. Yeah. And and where I where I get that, there's a, a gentleman who wrote uh, a book through uh, Air Connection. It's a, a KV-1 book. It was kind of on the same vein of that T-34 mythical weapons book. Yeah. Uh, I think his name's Neil Stokes. The website's 4BO.com or something like that. Isn't it 4BOGreen.com? 4BOGreen.com. And it's a really good website. And, you know, I'm not out to critique Neil and his own research. Uh, but there's he gets into 4BO on there and he talk, starts talking about the the tanks that were delivered to Aberdeen Proving Grounds in the early 40s. Uh, for U.S. evaluation, and they sent a T-30, well, they sent a KV-1. I know one of the T-34s they have there is actually a German captured vehicle, so I can't remember if they sent a T-34 or not, but it doesn't really matter. But um, 
in his article on his website, he lists two federal standard numbers that, that approximate this 4BO color. And one of them, the, he says, is the, is the when the vehicles, because it's in the U.S. report, apparently, that when the vehicles arrived, they were this color, uh, 4BO, and he gave a federal standard number match. And then I can't remember off the top of my head what the other one was. And he gives another federal standard number match uh, for for this 4BO that was from some other source. Neil, I, if I'm getting this completely wrong, I'm sorry, but I think I'm I think I'm okay. Now, the 4BO that Aberdeen referenced is really really dark. I mean, that color looks almost black at at 100 feet, mm-hmm. and it, it's what a lot of U.S. tanks were initially painted in. Uh, during the war, and that's what he's giving his reference. Now, compared in this other number, is a lot more pea green kind of color. I mean, so they're miles apart. So he postulates a bit in his article that you know this thing was in ocean transit, and maybe this color darkened over time. And I just completely disagree with that assessment. They are two completely different colors. They were never the same. Where I'm coming from in that is is is, is it? Uh, I've I've mentioned my other hobby on here uh, several times. I've never told in anyone what it was, but um, I'm also a military collector as as much as I'm a scale modeler, and I've been collecting Red Army militaria from 1935 to 1945 for about 25 years now. And if you look at Soviet helmets from that era, um, I knew that's you know, where you were going. <laughs> The, the model 36 helmets from, from the pre-war and early war period um, were, came out of the factory in a really dark green, very similar to this federal standard olive drab that Neil Stokes talks about on his website. A really, really dark green. And then if you get to the model 39 and 40 helmets, they have this more pea green color. Both of those colors in the literature are called 4BO, and they're yeah. two completely different colors. Yeah. So once you add weathering and scale effects into that, it had really die. You know, my own Soviet armor models, I've never painted the same one with the same formula twice. I just don't think you have to. Well, I, I agree. I mean, particularly for Soviet stuff, I'm not sure that there is a consist. I mean, when you look at how um, desperate and how fractured the Soviet manufacturing system was, uh, I just find it impossible to believe that when the paint was delivered to the T-34 factory, somebody opened it up and went, eh, you know what, this, this, this doesn't match the standard. Let's send this paint back and hold up production. It just it beggars belief that given the strain that the Soviet Union was under during those years, that anything that was close and they were, you know, paint is made up of chemicals and and dyes and stuff like that. And I'm sure the supply chain for that stuff was not consistent. And I just, I, I can't believe that there, there was a consistent Soviet color that was as consistent as as U.S. colors, and U.S. colors weren't consistent. I mean, there's there's plenty of evidence, and that's before you get into weathering and all of that. But um, 
and it's further uh, on this Zist two project I'm building. I've, I've explicitly painted just the gun sight, a very distinct shade of green. Because one thing in my collecting experience is that Soviet optics, gun sights, periscopes, other field optics, you know, scissor periscopes and rangefinders and that stuff. Right. Um, from my collecting experience, fall into a very narrow range of color, and they're all very consistent because they probably all came out of one or two factories. And do you it's, think it's a very, it's a very brownish leaning olive green? Like if you buy a jar of olives at the supermarket, I mean that's it's olive. I mean that's the color it is, and I think that color was four bo as well. And do you think that maybe the part of the reason you see a little bit more of a consistent color there? is because those optics would be removed and protected more than the rest of the vehicle itself. I mean, that those were the, 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 they were important and therefore not just simply, you know, throw a cover over them and drag it along with the gun. But when they were transporting, that might be removed and put in a case. It's possible. And, you know, I, the application technique may have been different as well because they had to have a better, you know, it was a finer piece of instrumentation than the, the, the entire tank. Yeah. And maybe more care was taken. Of course, the storage was better, et cetera. But, but yeah, for, for Soviet armor, maybe not quite anything goes, but you know, it's kind of leaning that way. Sure. Sure. So while I think, I think 30 or 40 years ago, um, scale color, was really something that was worth debating whether you go with an exact match to RLM uh, 76 or 65 or whatever. Whereas now because of the new, the different techniques, the, the, the color that ends up there is actually not one color, but is made up of a lot of different colors and therefore trying to, to match it to a color chip or trying to take that color and then fade it exactly or scale affect it exactly 30% or whatever. I just don't think, I don't think it, it matters as much as it did at one time. So while we're talking, I I look back through the Facebook messages, Tony Jacobs down in Australia was the one who, who posed this. And had uh, a cup, a few comments on it, in a couple of messages. So he was kind of leaning that it didn't matter anyway. At least the kind of vibe I got. You know, he wasn't buying the exact match kind of BS. So hopefully, hopefully you're vindicated, Tony. Yeah, I don't know how much authority authority we are, but uh, that's our opinion for whatever it's worth. Exactly. Exactly. So the next one, this JLC razor saw. Yeah. You got one. I. What do you I, think? I, I not only have the JLC razor saw, I also have the uh, UMM, UMA uh, uh, scribers. Um, I think they are essential parts of uh, any modeler's toolkit. Um, The JLC razor saw is an extremely fine razor saw. Uh, It's great for sawing ailerons and elevators and stuff like that if if you're trying to remove or repose them. Uh, or remove them from a wing to to pose them differently. Uh, very fine, so it takes very little plastic. 
You can actually also use the razor saw itself for rescribing panel line, like across the top of the back of a, a fuselage where you have a series of straight panel lines going over and the, the panel line gets erased along the seam line running down the center of the fuselage. The JLC razor saw actually works very well for rescribing that line because the teeth are so fine. The only, only downside at all, and it's not really a downside, it's just something you, you be aware of and plan accordingly, is because these saws are so thin, they are liable to, at some point, actually break uh, when you're using them. They'll, they'll snap. So when you go to UMM USA and you buy the JLC razor saw, it comes with, I think, one or two spare blades. But you probably wouldn't be badly served to go ahead and pick up. He sells the spare blades separately, and you wouldn't be steered much wrong by going and picking up another couple blades just to have them. Because eventually you will break them if you use them. And uh, I get a lot of use out of mine. How about you? Well, I just got mine. I used it to do the starting cuts on those uh, float struts on the Paul I'm working on. So all these, all this new, all these new projects I've got are excuses to buy new tools. <laughs> you poor thing. Oh, no doubt. Kevin Kelly out of Euclid, Ohio asked, you know, he was thinking about buying one of these and wonder what we thought about it because he saw it on Plasmo. Right. Who goes, who goes to town. Now <laughs> he, he kind of alluded, he kind of alluded to it uh, about it being expensive, but I tell you right now, the box set in the plastic case yep. with the, with the extra blades and the spacers to do two or three parallel lines with the multiple saw blades. Yeah. 20 bucks, 20 bucks. Yep can't go wrong no i agree you can't you can't you can't go wrong at the at the regular price i don't think but no. for twenty dollars uh it's a must-have in my opinion i agree i've only used it once and i'm like now another thing i'll say is uh paul budzik has a video on this on this saw or small saw blades yeah um worth watching to see kind of how he uses it and he also offers a a tip on how to jury rig it to get a deeper cut on the blade mm-hmm because if you just load it into the handle, you only have about quarter of an inch. Know, quarter inch. So yeah. yeah, not much. You can actually remove the blade from the handle and, you know, use it freehand. You could actually do that on some small part. Now, if you're doing uh, some major cut, uh, obviously the, the flex and all would be such that you wouldn't want to do it. But uh, uh, I'm telling you, I, I, Whenever I see uh, UMM USA at the shows, and they they are at a lot of shows, I invariably pick up one or more of their tools uh, nearly every time. Uh, the The guy's a great guy and uh, uh, very friendly, very helpful, willing to talk and explain. And uh, no, I I can't recommend it highly enough. Well, I, I'll second that. Probably for me is, you know, I've always used a, uh, you know, a jeweler saw. Right. You know, with a tension, tension blade in it. Right. And it's not nearly as fine as this. Yeah. Um, the blades are brittle and can, can break easy. 
I really like this thing. I think this is going to kind of replace that the use of my jeweler saw by probably 90% or more the times I use it. Yeah. And like I said, it has the added advantage. You can use it on some rescribing of some panel lines, depending on the, the panel line in question. The teeth are so fine that you get just such a great cut. Um, well, uh, they're, they're fine on, they're fine on one side of the blade right, and they're a little coarser right, on the coarser other side. Coarser on the other, right. Absolutely. Kevin, go get one. Absolutely. Like it. Highly recommend it. The next question we're going to talk about, let me see who, who sent us this. It's one of the guys in the mail. That's right. Uh, it was Rob Perlman who I thought had just got into the hobby. So Rob, I apologize for that. He, he wants to know about modeling in small spaces. Now to get back to his, his mail a little bit, um, you know, well, they've, they've moved to an apartment that's a lot smaller than what they had. He's married. He switched to water-based acrylics full stop because uh, even with an extractor, he doesn't like the uh, the atomized lacquers in the close proximity to the wife and dog. Yeah. Um, he's really he's really digging the AK Gen 3 paints, which I've not tried yet. So we'll have to give that a spot. And he's also, you know, kind of working in 72nd scale or smaller for the time being while his space is limited. So... That's the right scale. God's one true scale. I was going to say, let me give you the working in, in small spaces is difficult. I am blessed to have a huge model room and a huge model storage area and a wife that is tolerant beyond everything I could expect. But there are a lot of modelers who do model in small spaces and I think one of the keys is you have to be more organized. You know, um, you and I joke about reaching critical mess in our uh, uh, modeling spaces where we have to stop and clean up. Um, whereas if you model in a small space, I don't think you can afford to be lazy like that. I think that you have to be very organized. You have to put everything back exactly where you got it after you use it each time that you you have to be organized in putting your stuff away and getting it out. One of the big things I recommend is that Harbor Freight Tools for, I think it's about 60 bucks, but of course they always have a 20% off coupon. They sell a wooden, I think it's either called a woodworker's box or a watchmaker's box. And it it's, is, it's a machinist. It's a machinist tool chest. Machinist tool chest. Okay. It's it's a it's a Chinese copy of a Gerstner tool chest. And Gerstner is a famous sensory old brand. That's right. Who you makes told, those? You told me. Still that. makes those chests. They're very expensive. And you're you're taking one of my suggestions from me, by the way. <laughs> but, go, but go ahead. Well, let me let me recommend you go to Harbor Freight and you buy this because it is a. As Mike says, it's a machinist box. It's actually a cheap copy of, of the box Mike's or Mike references. It has a fold-down uh, front door that you can actually attach a uh, small modeling mat to. Then it has tons of drawers where you can keep your modeling tools and supplies organized. And then it has a top, uh, an open up top section 
where you can keep glues and even some paints and stuff. It's, it's really good for being organized. And the whole thing really is not more than, I'm sitting here looking at mine, it's not more than maybe a foot, a little more than a foot tall, uh, probably a foot and a half in length and maybe eight inches in depth, uh, something approximating that. But it's got a ton of storage. You can put everything you need to model from beginning to end in that case. When you can sit it on a table, open it up, model when you're done, put it all away, lock it up, latch it up, and go put it in a closet. And I think you can model as effectively out of something like that as you can having a having a model room. It just requires being more organized. Now that I've stolen your suggestion, Mike, what else? Well, I'm going to I'm going to stick with that one a minute cuz I was with you until you said put it in a closet. The reason I would suggest that type of tool chest is it looks nice. Well, it does. Yes. It and really you can does. leave you can you can leave it out. Um it's furniture. If you're into if you're into antiques, go yes, it is. You could you could go spend the money and get a get an get an original Gerstner tool chest if you wanted to. Same thing, it's just going to be a lot more money. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, it, it, it looks nice and you can leave it out actually. And people who come over will be, Hey, that's cool. What's that box? You know, maybe you want yeah. to tell them, maybe you don't, but, um, it's something you wouldn't have to clean up. You can put all your, your, you know, your evergreen and all that stuff, the stuff you have to go to and get, you know, one piece of every now and then keep that in the Tupperware bin under your bed or in the closet or wherever. And this tool chest can, can be out. Um, cause when you close it up, you can't see any of the tools or anything. Right. It's completely closed. It's a wooden, nice wooden finish piece of furniture. Like you say, uh, I was really, really going to recommend that as well because you know, the cheap one at Harbor Freight's not that much. No, it's and not. It, it would, it would really lend itself well to that kind of, kind of thing. Yeah. Well, in um, fact, that's, that's what I use it for when I've got this big, nice model room, but when, I go over to our club has a Saturday morning workshop. And when I go over to the Saturday morning workshop, I take that box with me and it has everything I need to sit there and model with the guys while we're all working. And, uh, you know, some guys use fishing tackle boxes. Other guys use, uh, you know, art boxes or art bin boxes, but, I really don't think that that there's anything that you can that that is as good as this uh, machinist box. And I also add on my list, you know, you need to tidy up after every session, and that just gets into the happy wife, happy life kind of kind of absolutely kind of viewpoint. Um, you know, obviously you have to manage the tendency, the modeler's tendency to accumulate stash, magazines, whatever. Um, yeah. You know how it is. <laughs> well, and and part, part of, I think, being effective in that is storage. Um, you know, there are tons of storage options. So you mentioned Tupperware, but uh, Sterilite, you know, there are these uh, multi-drawer uh, things with, with drawers and rolling carts. Uh, actually, in my model room, I've got Ikea makes a one, two, three, four, five, six, 
a nine drawer rolling cart that's not really very expensive, but it's got nine drawers for, for stuff, but it's a piece of furniture and you, you, when the drawers are closed, you don't know what's in it. And so it's a piece of furniture that you can have in whatever room and you can roll it to wherever you're, you happen to model. If you can't put it next to where you normally model. Now I'm thinking back to my apartment days, which were a long time ago at this point. Um, Robin is a tolerant woman. <laughs> she is the one thing I did at an apartment I had was, was lack of storage. And there was a, a coat closet in the, you know, the main living area, dining area, part of the apartment. So I went and got two shelf brackets the wall mount things and, and then right. the, the actual aluminum brackets that fit into that. And in the home store, I, I had them go ahead and rip a, a piece of plywood into shelf widths that would fit inside this closet. So I converted a coat hang closet into a four or five shelf stash closet. Yeah. Well, and you know, you can do that and then still, depending on how you mount it, you can still have it such that it still functions as a coat closet. You could. Because if the shelves are behind it, you know, the coats can be in front of it. The the Anybody who opens it up isn't going to immediately be staring at your entire stash. And again, <laughs> ha happy wife, happy life. Now, here's one, and I'm curious what you're going to think of this one. Um, modeling subjects into things that have a secondary purpose when they're done. And what I mean by this, by example, is is one year when we were at the Chicago figure show, a gentleman had modeled a pair of bookends. Yes. That represented the German and Soviet sides of the battle of Stalingrad. Yeah. And it was just now, of course he had, you know, a bunch of Stalingrad related history books between them uh, as part of the display, but they were really nice and really well done. I, I, and, I remember that. Each each one was a ruined building with a bunch of infantry doing their doing their thing, but they were bookends. The urban the urban setting really lended itself to actually building these things into into a bookend, you know, an L shaped base. Yeah, uh, with a high with a high vertical back on it, and you know that that could even get you out of this seventy second scale limitation because these were thirty fifth scale. Yeah. And yep. they actually had a had a purpose beyond just being models. They're they're bookends. They're functional bookends. Yeah. So um, I don't know. I don't know what else would go down that kind of vein to to do something like that. But um, I thought it was a neat idea worth mentioning. Well, if you ever, I don't know if you've seen it on either Facebook or Twitter, you'll see these books in a you know on a bookshelf, and somebody has built a what looks like an alleyway okay a lighted alleyway that they that is the width of a book or two and they stick it in the bookshelf in in the bookcase along with all the books so along this it's kind of the reverse idea of bookends it is a little diorama stuck into the middle of a bookshelf full of books and you could do that as well so I, I don't know what genre Rob's modeling in, but uh, that might be, you know, it's, it, 
it's another level of the, the creativity aspect of this is, you know, a subject and how to display it and not have it have to be some standalone model that just takes up space. It actually could be integrated into something else or used for something else. And, uh, I've always admired those bookends and I wanted to do something like that. I've never done it, but, uh, it was, I remember all of us just oogling all over those things. They were so well done. Such a neat idea. I absolutely remember those. I wonder if you can Google and find a picture of it. Uh, you know, that was, I, God, that's 20 plus years ago. Cause oh, you, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It tw- almost 22, 23 years ago. I can, I can almost tell you uh, the exact year. So I would love to find a photo online of those things. Or something like them. Thank God we still have our memories. <laughs> and our wives. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's all for now for the for the listener uh, inspired topics. We would yeah. I'd like to get some more because I'd like to do another one of these down the road after we yes. accumulate a few more. So if there's something and I, I'm probably find some more if I just look through what people have sent us, but uh, um, the the paint color one had been a reoccurring thing and the other two were kind of new and recent, but um, please send us, send us some more suggestions and uh, we'll tell you what we think for whatever it's worth. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Mike, uh, to wrap things up, do you have a shout out this month? I do have a shout out this episode. My shout out is going to Mr. John Voitek of UMM USA. Good shout out. Yeah, not just because um, Proxy sponsoring his razor saw. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hopefully he'll hear this and appreciate it. Uh, I hope but- so. Um, to give a little background on John, um, if you go back into the late 90s, early 2000s, fine scale modeler era, uh, he had some amazing builds. Uh, the two that come to mind are his B2 bomber and his Hercules. Yep. Uh, um, that was... 2004 and 2005 IPMS Nationals. You see those builds and you'll know why he has invested so much thought and planning and marketing into these tools he sells. Yeah. Uh, because he, he makes great use of such in these. I mean, they're absolutely phenomenal builds. Um, but on the business side of things, I ordered this saw on the 4th of July and I had it in my mailbox and I'd only came from Ohio, but still, yeah. um, I had it, gosh, I want to say it was Tuesday. Yeah. Very good service. So the 7th, the 7th of July, this thing came in the mail. Um, extremely, I mean, it wasn't five hours for me hitting confirm on his website that he cut the shipping label for this thing. Yeah. Uh, I don't expect that level of service, but when I get it, I really like it. <laughs> Amen. And if you if you if you ever see him at a show, uh, you know now his table is always very busy because he's doing a land office business, um, uh, because his stuff is so popular. But he is a, an extremely personable guy who will take the time to talk with you, to answer questions, to make suggestions. Um, I, I, I just really like dealing with him. And so I, I can second that shout out. He is a, he's really, really a good, a good vendor. 
Well, who do you have? Well, uh, this one is just terribly self-serving, but I'm going to do it anyway. Um, one of the other hats that I wear is I am the retention and recruitment secretary for IPMS USA. Uh, the, basically what I do is I try and keep the members that we have and try and add to the membership. I am a huge booster of IPMS USA national membership. It's very inexpensive. It's about $30. Uh, you get six copies of the IPMS USA magazine for that membership over the year. Uh, in addition, IPMS USA operates as the framework that allows all of these local clubs to put on contests. Uh, the national membership supplies insurance to these local shows. It's a, it's a really good organization. I highly support it. I've been a member since the early 1980s. And this year, because of the fact that IPMS USA's national convention had to be canceled, um, we're going to take a hit, uh, both in revenue that comes from the show that won't be there for us this year. And also, we experience a membership boost every year about convention time because you have to be a member in order to enter the, the national contest. So this is kind of a double whammy for IPMS USA. And while we're, we're okay, we're going to be fine we aren't experiencing the membership growth that we would like to experience. So if any of you out there are listening and you're not members of either IPMS USA or your, your whatever nation you're in, your national chapter of your IPMS uh, national organization, let me urge you, go ahead. It's worth the money. It's not that expensive. And while you don't always see all of the tangible benefits directly in your face, they're there and they really do a, they're volunteer run organizations. They're really a good group of well-meaning individuals sacrificing some of their modeling time in order to give modelers on the whole a better experience and I, I highly recommend the membership. Please, if you're not a national member, consider going and joining uh, the website's IP, uh, www.ipmsusa.org. That's .org. Go, look around, and please join. All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up, Dave. I think it is. As we always say, so many kits. So little time. You take it easy. All right, man. We'll see you next time. All right. Take care.